So we've, we've kind of launching into this new series, right? That's kind of been the deal. Like, let's see if we can't kind of wrap our minds around this idea of who God is. And so as I was thinking about how I wanted to sort of approach, and as God was laying these things on my heart, how we're going to approach the nature and character of God, I began to think through the way that God refers to himself throughout Scripture. Like, if we really want to understand God, what does God actually say about himself? And so what we've learned uh, as kind of journeying through this process of discovery is that God has given himself a whole lot of names in Scripture that are really incredibly important. And those names have attributes tied to them. They have specific parts of God's character in which he reveals things to us about who he is. So we don't necessarily just have to read Scripture and, and see what the sentences say. God and his presence and his attributes and his nature is actually wrapped up in the very names that he gives himself and that people have given him throughout Scripture. And so we started looking at these, and depending on how you look at the list, there's anywhere from like 22 to 390 in terms of how you define names and attributes, and it's unbelievable. And so what we thought we'd do this summer is we would begin by exploring these names and look at what they teach us about who God is, his nature, the attributes of his character, and even what they teach us and tell us about Jesus, who is equally God. And so names are incredibly important, right? They're high-value places. They're, they're part of our identity. They tie us to family. They tie us to history. They reveal parts of our character at times. And throughout, throughout history, names have been incredibly important, maybe a little less so today in, in our Western culture than they have been over years past, in which they were kind of ascribed throughout family generations or work or all these kind of things. They gave definitions, and even in, in other cultures, names are, are brought about to bring meaning to who you are. So they're incredibly valuable and incredibly important. I actually have a significant family name. It is tied into who I am. And any of you that know me know that. So my name is Treb, T-R-E-B. And everyone's like, that's different. Uh, I don't know another one. There's another one running around this globe. Uh, we've kind of had weird interactions over the years. There's only, I think there's only two. But uh, he's out there. So if you find him, he's not me. But my name, Treb, comes from my dad's name spelled backwards. His name was Bert, B-E-R-T. I know, I wasn't there, right? Like, I'm not part of the deal. Um, uh, it's really cute when you're one. When you're 39, it gets a little older. But nonetheless, that was my dad's name, Bert. My name's Trep. All right, so what does that mean? Well, it's actually kind of significant in terms of how it's attached to our family. So my grandfather was Marion Elbert Prater Sr. Okay, that's my dad's dad. So my grandfather, Marion Elbert Prater Sr. And my, my grandmother and my grandfather tried to have a baby like crazy. They had the most difficult time and they, they worked through it and they prayed through it and they were late into their late 30s, mid 40s and they were still trying to have a baby and they finally just gave up. They said, you know what? This is not gonna happen for us. This is not what the Lord has for us. So we're going to adopt. And adoption back in the 40s was a very different process, of course, than it is today. Those of you that have gone through it or experienced it, was a, it was a different process and it had a different kind of stigma attached to it, but they decided they were going to adopt. And so they went to San Antonio, Texas, and they adopted this boy, right? And they named him Marion Elbert Prater Jr. Now, not a big deal to us, but in the 40s, right, you didn't name adopted children juniors. You just didn't. They weren't biologically yours. And so it was sort of an unheard of thing, but they loved this boy who was my father so much that they were going to name him Marion Elbert Prater Jr. And so my dad, because that's a mouthful, went by Bert from Elbert, right? So you see where we're going here. So my dad's father, right, tragically died when my dad was 19. And it was a family disaster and it caused all kinds of hurt and it was a difficult part of our family story. But my dad lost his father at, at 19. 
And so when my mom and dad got married and they had their first child, which is me, I have a younger brother, but I am the oldest, as a gift to my dad, to honor his dad, my mom wanted to name me Marion Elbert Prater III. And I would go by Treb, which is from Bert Elbert spelled backwards. And so that's what they named me. So on my birth certificate or my passport or whatever, it says Marion Elbert Prater III. Now, I've never gone by that, mind you, right? And in this day and age, just try and buy me an airline ticket. It's a nightmare, right? So I've got like 40 names. None of them ever work out right. In fact, I forget that that one actually is my name at time. Um, when I was in college, they were calling roll, and the guy next to me was like, dude, that's you. I'm like, ah, mine, sorry, sir. People are like, Marion, isn't that a girl's name? I'm like, sure, but I got a pink phone case, so whatever. I'm fine with that. And... John Wayne's first name was Marion, so hello, right? I'm getting tougher than that. But my mom tells this great story when I was in kindergarten. They had yet to break it to me that this was my real name, right? I'm still thinking I'm Treb, like just the dude. And so we go to kindergarten, and they're lined out on the desk, and they got them in groups, and they got these name tags on the desk, and the teachers move you around. You're there with your parents. And it's the first day of kindergarten, like I've never been to school before. And they set you at the, set you at the desk, and they do all this, and, and they say, and Marion, you know, this is your desk. It says Marion right across the top. And I go, I look at my mom and go, Mom. That's not my name. And she goes, yes, it is. We'll talk later. <laughs> I'm scarred. One of many reasons why I am who I am. So anyway, names are important. They've got high value. I'm wrapped up in that. You may be, you may not be, but they, they have value. They have meaning. And so when we started this series, we wanted to begin with probably the most personal and sacred name that God gives himself, that he actually shares, not just with Moses, but throughout scripture, but really gives personal meaning to when he has an encounter with Moses in chapter three of Exodus. And that is the name Yahweh. It's actually a transliteration. We actually can't pronounce it. We don't know how to pronounce it. And I'll tell you why a little bit more in a moment, but it's four Hebrew consonants, uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Right, And it's very sacred and very personal. We'll get into it in just a moment. But God gives special meaning to that name throughout Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you look at your Bible, and you don't have to do it now, anytime you see the word LORD in all capitals, L-O-R-D in all capitals, it is the, it is the uh, translation of the word Yahweh. So it's 6,800 times you will see in the Old Testament that the word LORD, L-O-R-D capitalized, is actually a translation of the word Yahweh. Now they do that because they want you to know that this is the sacred and personal name that God has given himself, and it's different than all the other names of God that we're going to look at, like Elohim, which also means Lord, is actually translated usually as God, right? Or if it's translated as Lord, it won't be capitalized. Elohim, who we're going to get into next week, is the second most widely used name for God, and it's used like 2,000 times. But it's also used to refer to other gods and also used to refer to people, like my Lord Treb, right, or whatever, like, or you were a Lord of the land. That, was, that would be used that way. No, I'm not your Lord. You get it. But Lord of the land, right? So when you see and you open the Old Testament, in fact, Genesis is a great example. If you open up the Genesis chapter 1 and you put them side by side with Genesis chapter 2, you'll see in chapter 1, 1, it says, and God created the heavens and the earth, right? That word is the word Elohim. It is right there. And, it, and you get to chapter 2. And we begin to see, oh, I'm sorry, it's the word Yahweh. We get to chapter 2, and you'll see it's not capitalized, and we see the word Elohim. So you can see in different places in Scripture how God is, is using his name. So you'll, you'll be able to differentiate it and how it's used in Scripture by the way that your translations print it. So you'll see it in all capitals. It's used 6,800 times, as I mentioned, and was incredibly sacred. And tradition told us that the Jewish scribes, when they would write it, right, they were so careful in how they wrote it that they would, before they came to a section, they would bathe themselves, and when they were done, they would throw away the pen. That's how holy and sacred 
the name actually was. It was never spoken out loud uh, with God's people except for once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest inside the Holy of Holies, believe it or not. So as this name was actually spoken, it was only spoken once. And to protect its sanctity, the scribes actually removed the vowels from the word. So we get Yahweh actually from the Hebrew word to be. And it's the consonants that make up that translation. So it's the word to be, and the scribes have removed the vowels so that the people wouldn't accidentally say it. All right, that's how sacred it was. And what they did in order to transliterate it is they took the word, the Hebrew name Adonai, which means Lord and Master, which we'll also talk about this, this summer. And they took the vowels out of Adonai, and they pushed them inside the consonants of Yahweh, and it translates as Jehovah. Right? So we pronounce Yahweh because we've taken the, the vowels from Adonai and we've inserted them into the Y-A-H-W-E-Y-H of Yahweh. We've inserted the Adonai vowels. So we actually don't know how to say the word. It's, it can't be spoken, essentially. It's a name that can't be spoken. It was that sacred and that holy. Right? And so this is where God begins to reveal himself. And so when you read scripture, we have to understand the depth of this holiness. And I want to explore that by showing you just how God gives personal depth to his name and his meaning when he encounters Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up, flip to chapter 3. We're going to look at this incredible interaction in which God first really gives meaning. It's not the first time that we see the word, but it's the first time that God gives special meaning to the word when he encounters Moses and calls him to go and take the Israelites out of Egypt. Let's take a moment before we dive into the word and let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and discover deep and real truths about who you are, that you are a holy, mighty, majestic, personal, ever-present God. And that, Lord, you ascribe and show us these incredible characteristics of who you are through names. Lord, you give yourself deep meaning so that we can understand it in language. But ultimately, we know, God, that you are indefinable that our language will always and forever fall short of your character and who you are. We will never be able to grasp you. Yet, Lord, as you referred to in Scripture and as your people call upon you, we get to see glimmers and glimpses and revelations of your beauty and of your wonder and of your sort of jaw-dropping holiness and majesty. And so this morning, my prayer is simple, that we might come face-to-face with a God who is, that is, is more holy and mighty and majestic than what we could have possibly imagined, yet a God that invites us into this personal place, a God who is ever-present and never leaves, and a God who showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. For you are the great I am. Take a moment in your own heart as we sit here, and just ask the Lord this morning to teach you something, something new about his character or his nature. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone around you or behind you. We do this every single week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for the people you worship with. Pray for the people you sit next to. Maybe it's your husband or your wife, or maybe you're here for the first time. Just pray for someone. Ask the Lord to move in their heart. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts, that you would just reveal yourself to us. Lord, even an encounter with your most holy name we should take with great seriousness. And so, Lord, teach our hearts this morning as we try and ask you to reveal yourself to us. We ask this in the risen name of Christ. Amen. 
hopefully a very familiar story, but it's going to give us a real depth and understanding into the nature of who God is. So this is Exodus chapter 3. Moses has, if you remember our, our study of characters, I think it might have been last summer or the summer before last, we looked at Moses and he was a fascinating guy, raised in the household of Pharaoh, right? And what was a Israelite and yet tied to the Egyptians in this sort of deep way. And he murders a guy at 40 and flees for his life and finds himself in Midian, um, out there running for his life, hiding from the Israelites, hiding from the Egyptians, and he's just out being a shepherd. And this is where we pick up in chapter, <clears throat> chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he had led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horab, the mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight and this bush that does not burn up. And so the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob. And, and this Moses, at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hezites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So pretty familiar story, right? Moses has fled, and for essentially 40 years, he has lived as a shepherd uh, to Jethro, the prince of Midian. He's essentially married into the family, and he's tending sheep. And he has taken these sheep all the way to the other side of the desert. He is 80 years old. And he's taken the sheep all the way to the other side of the desert. And it says that God begins to do something miraculous. He causes this bush to catch fire but not be consumed, right? So that's the burning bush, right? It is the fire in this bush. God is trying to get Moses' attention, right? And so a lot of times we think that God is in the burning bush, but the text actually tells us that the bush was on fire and God saw Moses go over to it and he speaks to him out of it. So God is everywhere. He's not just wrapped up in the burning bush, right? So, but he goes over and Moses thinks to himself, well, this is a strange thing. I'm 80, I've never seen a bush not burned up, I shall go and see it. And so he walks over there, and God sees it, he's like, oh good, Moses is going over to the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, right? And, and Moses is like, yeah, it's me, what is happening here? And he says, I am the God of your father, and the God of Isaac and Abraham, and the God of Jacob. Take off the shoes, your shoes, for the places you are standing is holy ground, right? And, and Moses, when he learns that this is God, he says that he hides his face because he was afraid. So Moses takes off his shoes, he hides his face, God is speaking to him out of the bush, and he said, Moses, I've seen the oppression of my people. 
I've heard their cry. I am commiserating with their misery. They are being held by these slave drivers, and I have heard them crying to me, and we are going to release them. When I say we, I mean you are going to release them. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and then I'm going to send you to the Israelites, and I am going to release them. And Moses says, no, I don't, I don't think that's how that's going to go. I mean, I, I like that idea, but what would I even say? Uh, who am I, right? Like, how, how am I the one to go? And God says, okay, I'll give you a promise. And here's the promise. I will be with you. That's all he tells him. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be with you. And Moses says, okay, that's great. Um, so if I go to the Israelites who hate me and who I basically fled from and that think I'm, they think I'm better than they are because I was raised in Pharaoh's household and I killed a guy and all these kind of things, it's like, what do I tell them when I say, hey, the God of our fathers, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, he sent me and said to come with me, right? What do I, what do I tell them? Who, who sent me? In other words, he's saying, tell me your name. Like, I, all the Egyptian gods had names with the lowercase g, right? Like, how do I explain to the people that you are actually God? And that seems like a kind of a crazy question, but what, we're at, what he's asking God is, I need to know you in a personal way so that I can tell people that I actually really know you. Because they're not going to believe me if I just say, God said to follow me. I have to have some real way to prove to them that you called this. So what do I tell them? And God looks at him and he says, essentially... You can tell them that the I am has sent you, right? I am who I am is essentially what he says. It can also translate as I will be what I will be. It's a present tense sentence. And he says, so this is the evidence that when you show up, you will tell them that the I am sent me. And that verb, I am, is the Hebrew translation where we get the consonants for Yahweh, right? So this is the first time he's giving real meaning to this sort of sacred personal nature of this name, and then he goes on, this great story unfolds. But what I find really incredible about this whole interaction is, is a couple of things. One, some stuff we've talked about before, but some things we need to draw attention to. There's like 13 of them here, um, but we're going to go with two because that's how much time we have. And this is going to be the main problem with this entire series, is that I started doing this, I was like, great, we got 13 points. What good preacher does 13 points? Um, but we're going to do two, and I'm going to point out the highlights. And this, these are them right here, and I want you to pay attention to them because they're really important. What we learned about Yahweh in this incredible interaction with Moses are two things right off the bat, right? We learn that he is incredibly holy, yet we also learn that he is unimaginably personal. So think about that interaction of his holiness for just a moment, right? The bush is on fire. It's burning. Moses goes over there. God's presence is there. And he says, Moses, take your shoes off. This place is holy. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when Moses hears that, he hides his face. So we have this encounter with extraordinary holy God and ordinary Moses. I've said this a zillion times. I'm going to reiterate it again because it can't be said enough. If the modern evangelical church has done away with one doctrine, if we have literally put to death one doctrine that is causing us more damage than any other, it is the doctrine of the holiness of God. We have literally almost done away with it. Everything that we talk about when we talk about God drips with his grace and drips with his love, which is true. However, we neglect the holiness of God because, number one, we don't know how to talk about it, and number two, we don't like to talk about it. And so we neglect it. If you listen to even the, the lyrics of most modern Christian worship songs, they are dripping with romanticism. They are dripping with love language. We talk about God as our buddy, our friend, the man upstairs, but nowhere in Scripture is this how God is referred to. 
were referred to God as a friend only after and through the mediator, Jesus Christ. But all throughout Scripture, people have encounters with God that leave them terrified, leave them on the ground, and in some chances leave them dead. The God of Scripture is holy, he is mighty, he is just, he is unapproachable because of our sinful humanity. We tend to think of God as this, God with these superpowers, and the greatest of which is super love. But the reality is, if we listen to how Scripture refers to God, God is terrifying. He is dangerous, but he is good. No one approached God in Scripture. God draw them and allowed them into his presence at times, and the remarkable happened. Most everyone wound up on their face. Moses' shoes come off. Later, his hair is going to go white. Saul goes blind. You can name the situation after situation after situation where God's holiness and stark contrast to our ordinariness is overwhelming. And yet our culture wants to embrace God that fits into our conceptual ideas of friend, like God is somehow so approachable that he's not disappointed in my sin. That God is somehow so approachable that he fits into my corners and my boxes, and I can label him and use him as I will. This is holy, majestic, mighty, the name of God that is unsayable, unknowable, and unpronounceable. It's that holy. That scribes would burn or throw away the pen when they were done. They would bathe before they wrote it. And they took the vowels out just so no one would accidentally take it in vain. And we throw God's name around like it's a card trick. We use God like a card trick. This is the failing of the contemporary church. We have done away with God's holiness to fill our self-comfortable sort of nature with Christianity because we don't want to offend and God's holiness has been attached to his legalism, right? And so, hey, if you're gonna, that's not who God is anymore. That's a lie. God never changes. We learn this through scripture. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're gonna learn here in a moment that he is ever present and that presence never changes, meaning that this holy God that Moses interacted with is the same God we worship this morning. The same God. The same God we call upon to when it's convenient. The same God we kind of think kind of glances at our sin is like, oh, they were in college, whatever. He'll come back when they're 30 and they have kids. That's how church works, right? The God that sort of looks at our sin and brushes it off. This is not the true picture of God in Scripture. God hates sin. God is incredibly holy and he is perfect and he calls us and reveals himself into this beautiful picture by which we, ordinary people like Moses, get called into God's holiness and instead of trembling with fear, right, we take it for granted. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. But it is God. He is infinitely holy. And I want you to remember throughout the summers, we talk about names like Jehovah Jireh. We talk about names like Elohim, El Shaddai, the holy, the mastery, the majesty of God that we are walking into, not just in here, but in every breath of every day of every moment of our lives in the presence of holy God. And you are sinful and broken and he deserves our worship. He deserves our hearts to break over our sin and not become complacent with it. Mighty, majestic, holy God, right? But what's really amazing about all this, we could talk about God's holiness and his wrath and his power. Yes, true, true, true. But what's unbelievably amazing is that while God is jaw-droppingly holy, he is unimaginably personal. So think about this interaction for a moment, right? This is what God actually calls Moses to. He says, Moses, listen, I 
have heard and seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I am coming down to rescue them. So this holy, majestic, creator, mighty God loves his creation so much that he, he literally feels their misery. He hears their cries, and he comes down to rescue them. You want to talk about a personal God. A God that is so holy, and yet the people have been so disobedient, yet God still breaks over their hurt and their misery. And he says, I have seen their misery. I've seen their hurt at the hand of the slave drivers, and yet I love them so deeply that I'm coming to rescue them, and I'm going to use you. Think about how personal and mind-blowing that is. God doesn't need Moses. This is incredible, right? He can look at Pharaoh and be like, Pharaoh. In fact, he's going to do this later. Pharaoh, you're going to let him go. He doesn't need Moses, yet God is unimaginably personal. And not only does he hear the cry of his people, right, and love them and have his heartbreak over their misery, right, in which they are enslaved because of their own disobedience, he's still going to love them and deliver them, and he's going to use somebody to do it. This picture of God, how he works, doesn't change. That means that this truth is ever-present today. It means that God is as personal today as he was then. That God is infinitely holy, right? That he's unimaginably personal. That God knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your hurt. He is not indifferent to it. When you pray, when you cry out, God hears your cry. He actually hears you cry out to him. He hears your brokenness. He hears your hurt. And just like he says to Moses, I've heard and I'm going to come and rescue them. God's desire is to come and rescue you. Not from inconvenience, right? From the delivery of sin and death. God never promises to deliver us from worldly inconvenience, although we ask for that all the time. God, we pray for relief. God, remove this barrier, remove this stumbling block, remove this financial hurdle, help me fix this. Well, that's what we ask God of. And God says, yes, I love you, I hear your cry, but I have so much more I want to show you. So much that is so deeply personal that I want to come and actually rescue you, not just relieve you. I don't want to just make your life easier. I want to make your life full and abundant. And so God's picture of rescue is very different from our picture of relief. But yet God is incredibly personal, right? So we see that laid out. But we also see tied up in this thing is God is ever present. And that is one of the most remarkable pictures of all this. Like this is how he actually interacts with Moses. Think about this sort of present nature. Moses says, okay, you're going to send me to Pharaoh, right? The most powerful man on earth. Um, and how am I going to prove to him that he's supposed to give me his people. And God just says this, I'll be with you. That's God's great promise. Not, here's what's going to happen. On the third day when you show up, you're going to get an appointment. That appointment's going to be from 3.30 to 4.15. Don't worry, he's going to be a little bit late. But at 4 o'clock, he's going to let you in. At 4 o'clock, I want you to run through this PowerPoint. Use your staff. Make sure you use the right end of the staff. Point to these words, right? And then Moses is going to, or then Pharaoh's going to do all the things you want to do. He just says, no, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You want to know how he's, I will be with you. In other words, trust me. I'm present with you. Is that enough for you, Moses? I feel like there's been a thousand times in my life that God has asked me the same thing. He says, Treb, my promise is to be with you and never leave you. Is that enough for you? And I say, yes, it is, but I'm going to need everything else. I mean, it's totally enough. But if you could show me, that would be really much, much better. Right? But he doesn't. He invites him to this ever-present thing. And we get Moses' fear, right? Like, think about, put yourself in Moses' shoes for just two minutes. Moses is 80. 80. I'm sorry, if you're 80, I mean, you're getting there, right? There you go, Ruth. Ruth's 80. 
don't look a day over 40, but the truth is we're going to get any younger. Moses is 80. He's been wandering around shepherding sheep. He doesn't have time to, number one, walk to Egypt, right? I have a hard time walking to the garage. Moses has got to walk to Egypt at 80. And God says, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm actually going to have you go back to a people that hate you, to a family that you left and actually killed one of their people, right? I'm going to go have you go to the most powerful man on earth that believes he is a God, and the people actually believe he is a God, and I'm going to have you walk into his presence, and I'm going to have you go, Pharaoh, who I know you now hate me, who I killed one of your people, right? It's been 40 years. Good to see you, dad, or whatever. And um, here's the thing. All those slaves that you've got, I'm going to need you to let them go. Actually, let me do one better. Don't let them go. Just give them to me. Why? Oh, God, God said, just give them to me. Okay, cool. I've got them. And then I'm supposed to go to the Israelites and be like, hey, you guys, remember me? I'm Moses. I ran away 40 years ago. Basically, it's your threat and you're yelling at me and you all hate me as well. Um, listen, I don't know how to explain this to you, but Pharaoh uh, told me that I could have you all and you all are supposed to follow me. Um, no, everybody. How many? Oh, yep. Yeah, well, okay, by all counts, there's 1.5 to 3 million Jewish people. It means we're going to mobilize the city of Houston and we're going to leave. And they're going to go, oh, okay, oh, that's going to work out great, Moses. Where are we going? He goes, not real sure. But you're going to leave everything behind, and we'll figure it out when we get out there. And he looks at God, he goes, this is what I'm supposed to do? Then you got to help me, man. Like, I can't just go to them and say that. That is crazy talk. What do I tell them? Who do I say sent me? And this is where things get awesome, right? God looks at him, and instead of saying, give, he's basically saying, God, what is your name? Give me something I can take to him and say, Captain Universe, right? Captain Creator said, come with me. And they're like, Captain Creator. And they all run out. But God doesn't give himself a name. He doesn't give himself a name. He says this. He says, I am who I am in the present tense, right? Or I will be who I will be. And he says, essentially, tackling nothing that has any beginning or an end. And he says, that is who you're going to tell them sent you. Tell them that the I am sent you. In other words, this ever-present creator, constant, never-moving God who is with you sent you. He's ever-present. And that's where we get this idea of Yahweh, that God is this sort of holy, magnificent, yet intimately personal and knowable, sacred ever-present God who never leaves and never forsakes. And that was the promise that Moses was given. Go do all of that. Trust me and believe that I am with you because I have always been and I always will be. Man, I started looking at that and I was like, dude, Lord, I do not trust you. I thought I did. I really thought I did. I thought my life was all yours, but when I really look at it, God, I am I'm, I really don't believe the things that you are claiming about yourself, and I want to so bad. Like, I want to. I want to know God in that intimate, deep, personal way in which I revere his holiness. I'm broken by my own sin. Yet I believe about his personal invitation to know him through Christ, right? And I believe that when he sends me places or when he calls me to do things or when just in life in general, not only is he with me, but he has me because he always has been and always will be. And there is never a moment in between where he is not. He is the great I am. 
Now there's 13 more points here. We could talk about God being a bondage breaker. We could talk about God being a promise keeper. We could talk about God being a covenant God. All these things that he continues to show Moses. But I want to get to one last thing that's super remarkable here that I don't want you to miss. So if you remember way back in the day when we studied the book of John, we went verse by verse that whole thing. We come to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this remarkable interaction with the Pharisees, right? And they are at a place where they're ready to kill Jesus. They just, they've hit that breaking point. They are done with him, and they're trying to argue with him because Jesus had made some comments that make it sound like he's better than Abraham, which Jesus is better than Abraham. We read that in Hebrews. So it's not like he's mixing words, but they're going, are you better than Abraham? Right? This is what they're actually yelling at him. And Jesus says that he has known and seen Abraham, and the Pharisees are like, you're not even 40. How could you know Abraham? And this is what Jesus says. Check this out. So when Jesus is pinned down by the Pharisees, this is what he says in chapter 8. He says, you are not yet even 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham, essentially, you think you're better than Abraham? And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, right, I am. And it says, immediately they picked up stones and tried to stone Jesus. But he slipped away from their grasp and out of the temple grounds. You see what just happened? If Jesus was trying to say that he existed before Abraham, he would basically say, before Abraham, I was. In other words, I existed before him. But what Jesus does essentially is says this, I am the I am. He goes, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am God. I am the great I am. He associates himself with Yahweh. And they pick up rocks to kill him. That's why they wanted Jesus dead. They didn't try and kill Jesus because he was just a really good rabbi and they were threatened simply by his teaching. They killed Jesus because they believed that Jesus claimed to be God. And I had an argument with someone years ago that said, that they, they said Jesus actually never claimed to be God. And I was like, he absolutely did. You cannot read John chapter 8 and miss it. He says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. And the Pharisees knew it. At that moment, he associated himself with the unspeakable, unknowable, sacred, personal name of God, and they lost it. And they grabbed rocks and tried to kill him because the Pharisees knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, why is that important? Because the truth is, if God always was, and we learn from John, even from Hebrews, John chapter 1 from Hebrews, that Jesus was always with God and is God and was God, and all these kind of things rolled in, that God's redemptive plan, beginning in creation, running through Moses, is fulfilled through the I am of Christ. And we have the invitation to know him. That God, creator, holy, majestic, mighty, wondrous, wrathful, vengeful, powerful, grace-filled, love-inspiring, love-overflowing God has allowed us to know him, not just personally by his name and his attributes, by the person of Jesus Christ, and then gives us the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. You want to talk about the personal nature of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit himself takes up residence in the life of a believer. We don't just know about God through his name. We know about God through his name, but then we know God through his person. We know God through the person of Jesus Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit because he is the great I am, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God in three persons. It's the beautiful nature of the complexity of the Trinity. But God, in his infinite, incredible ways, is holy and majestic and jaw-droppingly powerful. 
yet he's unimaginably personal and noble, calls us into his plan, into his picture, knows us intimately, promises to be with us, ever-present, never to leave, never to forsake, no matter where you're being led or where you're going, God's promise is that he will never leave you. He is the I am. He always was and always will be. And that's not just bookending at the end of life and the end of history. It's actually a promise for your breath. Like, God, you are the great I am, meaning in this moment, you are the I am. You are all that I need. There is nothing else that will sustain me. You are Yahweh, right? And the beautiful nature of that is that you didn't end with Moses or you didn't end with Zechariah or the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. Lord, you literally carried your redemptive movement through Christ and you become even more knowable through him. And then the promise of your indwelling spirit means that you are the I am for me. And as I spent time this week really wrestling through this, I thought, what does that mean, that God is the I am for me? The beginning and the end, all that I can comprehend, all that I know, but what it really means is he's all that I need. There, we're going to see a lot of attributes in the names of God over the next 17, 18 weeks, but what we're going to really come back to constantly is that God always is. He is faithful. He is present. He never leaves. He is all-powerful, always and always on the throne. God always is. He is the very presence of the great I am. So as we close our time in worship, what I want us to imagine and contemplate as we get ready to embark on this journey is all the giant, magnificent nature of things that we don't understand about God, yet he gives us these incredible, beautiful slivers to wrap our hearts and our mind around to know him more. He is creator. He is Lord. He is savior. He is redeemer. He is present. He is holy. He is personal. He is knowable. He is God. He is the great I am. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity just to gather and open your word and worship. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and exalted in our closing here as we just wrap our mind around who you are and the names that you have been given and have given yourself. Lord, you are unimaginably personal, yet you are jaw-droppingly holy. So, Lord, let us not take that lightly. When we worship you, we are worshiping the great I am. We are worshiping the Lord Yahweh. We are worshiping the one that is so holy and so sacred that those that have gone before us wouldn't even speak your name. Yet because of Christ, we have access to you. How remarkable is that, that through Jesus we have access to holy, mighty, majestic God who always is and always will be and always was. For Lord, you are the great I am. You are ever-present. You are unimaginably knowable. And you are jaw-droppingly holy. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. spark I call you healer cause you can mend any broken heart I call you faithful father you finish everything you start my soul was made to respond I know you by a thousand names and you deserve every single one you've given me a million ways to be amazed 
I'll sing them back to you. Your love is boundless beyond what I could dream. Your grace is patient and you're never giving up on me. I call you bondage breaker cause you're handing out the prison keys. My soul was made to be free. I know you by a thousand names single one you've given me a million ways to be amazed at what you've done and I am lost in wonder at all you do I know you by a thousand names and I'll sing them back sing them back to you Our King forever, the beginning and the end. You are Lord and servant. You're the Son of Man. You're the Lion of Judah. You're the risen Lamb. You're the second Adam here to lead us home. You are Yahweh's glory. Now and bone. You are ocean parter. You will make a way. You are death defeater. You have risen from the grave. You are full of mercy. You are rich in love. You are Jesus, Messiah, So part of the challenge of a series like this is being able to walk away and take truth out and have an impact and change our lives. The encouragement is to, to listen to what God is speaking to your heart, to listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he telling you? What is he teaching you? What needs to change? What is the response to be? And take that and go and live it. Don't forget Joey. She's going to be outside. She's going to visit with you. you. have questions about anything that's going on. But let's support her and love her well. But take these truths about who God is, his infinite, incredible, beautiful holiness, right? His unimaginable personality and the personal nature in which he has for us and his ever-present character. He is the great I am.